Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by the brilliant Connor Bayek. Connor is founder and president of Libertas Institute, a libertarian think tank in Utah and USA. In that role, he's spearheaded important policy reforms dealing with property rights, civil liberties, transparency, surveillance, and educational freedom. Connor is the author of several books, including the terrific Tuttle Twins series that teaches the principles of liberty to young children. Other books include Latter-day Liberty, a gospel approach to government and politics and its companion, um, Latter-day Responsibility, Choosing Liberty Through Personal Accountability, as well as Christ versus Caesar and much more besides. So just to begin then, Connor, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that helped to form you and your love for Christ and his church? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for me, growing up, uh, religion and politics were always separate topics. Um, I... I, they were in different buckets of my life, if you will, and didn't really mix together. And it wasn't until probably after I graduated college, started studying a lot that I realized that the importance of the overlap, uh, morality and ethics and, and understanding how a lot of these ideas are uh, really combined. And I started to give myself the, I don't know, the, the freedom of thought to explore how they intertwine, how they relate to one another. And um I was raised in a somewhat political household. Um, my mom held a, an elected office in our city and um, you know, we'd watch the news and we're certainly aware, uh, aware of what was happening. We're always a very church going family and reading scripture and thinking about these things. But again, it was always kind of disconnected uh, the, those two areas of my life. And so, um, so since that time, I've, I've really just tried to spend a lot of time thinking about um, how Christianity should inform our deci decision making, not just our our interpersonal behavior, you know, uh, loving our, our neighbor next door, but also loving people across the world through through intermediate institutions, through the market, through the government. What does it mean to practice the golden rule on a geopolitical <laughs> global scale? Is Christ's counsel just for how you treat the little old lady down the road, or is it how you should treat you know, brown people in the Middle East or Chinese communists or like all these things. So, um, so it's, it's a fascinating topic for me that, that I enjoy thinking and writing about. Yeah, excellent. And then um, I think taken off from that, what first really prompted your interest in libertarian philosophy specifically? And how do you see that as um, the gospel being enacted in those ways that you mentioned? So um, I became libertarian uh, as a result first of learning about Ron Paul, who in the United States, he was in Congress, he ran for president, uh, very libertarian person, but, but for him, it was all about education. He was trying to use this platform to teach people the principles of liberty. He had written books, given a number of speeches. And so through him, I learned about a, a number of other writers um, and researchers and people who were thinkers in this movement. And so he, Ron Paul kind of opened my eyes to all these other ideas and, and books and things that I started reading and, and learning about. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how I started through self-study, started forming my kind of libertarian ideas. And I, uh, at the time, this was 2005, 2006, seven. I was writing a blog and uh, back then blogs were fairly new and I developed a bit of a readership. People started reading this and on my blog, I would talk about religious and political type of things together. And enough people were reading this that I thought, what if I tried to write a book? 
And so that's what led to my first book, Latter-day Liberty, which is a, a gospel approach to, to government politics. And my attempt to say, like, what does my faith inform me, not just how I should behave on Sunday, but how I should think politically, what opinions I should have, who I should support, what policies I should support. Um, and, and since then, especially with Christ versus Caesar, which is uh, my most recent book, uh, just trying to think through in far more detail what what my faith actually means for me on a day-to-day -day basis beyond just, you know, I should be nice. I should love people. It's like, well, no, like I can't I can't separate like how I just treat people as a person and then the policies I support and the things I vote for. Those are very interrelated. And so uh, it started with that first book about a decade ago. And, and I have now this bookend on the other side of the most recent one, too. Yeah, fantastic. I'd love to come back to those and ask you a bit more about them. But first of all, I'd love to look at the Total Twin series, which I absolutely love. Mm. And it especially resonates with me coming from background in teaching and different things. Me and my sister read the whole series together. I'd love to cool. ask you a bit about the background to that excellent series and what do you hope to get out of it then? And um, what does it offer us that other books probably don't, especially as it pertains to children, young people? Yeah, so the, the Tuttle Twins, for uh, any of your viewers who don't know, this is a, a series of children's books that teach the ideas of freedom, uh, property rights, justice, entrepreneurship, uh, the golden rule, things like that uh, to, to young people. These are fully illustrated stories. They're fun little uh, books. And uh, Elijah, who's the illustrator, um, shared my opinion seven years ago when we got started that um, there was really nothing already existing that we could use for our kids. Uh, we were both, uh, and still are, of course, dads, but our kids were younger then. And uh, both of us were wanting to share with our kids the ideas that we think a lot about, that we were studying about and talking to people about. And uh, we were frustrated with the lack of resources to help dads like us share these ideas with our kids. And so we created the first book as just a test. Uh, just a, a way to say like, this would be a fun project. And if it flops, that's fine. Uh, but we want to make this book exist. And so it was just a labor of love, a fun little project. And a lot of people bought it. A lot of people were really interested. We, we clearly identified a, a void in the market in terms of products uh, of this type. And so now we're men on a mission. Uh, we're, we're very motivated to teach these ideas, especially with how we see schools are not only not teaching these ideas, but they're teaching ideas that are hostile to these ideas. And mm -hmm. so uh, we feel very compelled, uh, a sense of urgency to uh, really be trying to accelerate, you know, getting more books out there and reaching more people. Yeah, wonderful. And can you tell us a bit more about the feedback and what that's been like then? And is there anything that's been particularly surprising with how people have received it? Or Yeah, the, I mean, the feedback is overwhelmingly positive. We obviously have our detractors, you know, like socialists don't really like our books. And that's quite obvious why. So there's uh, there's, there's people who are ideologically opposed. There's also some people who feel like we shouldn't be talking to kids about these ideas, that it's a bit of indoctrination even though our books are really designed to encourage critical thinking or, or really family discussions. It's like, hey, here's these ideas. And, and at the end of the, our books, we have discussion questions. So it's like, you go, you learned about these ideas. Now you can go talk about them as a family. We're really trying to foster those conversations. Uh, nonetheless, some people say, oh, it's indoctrination. You know, you should let kids be kids and wait until they're, you know, adults to talk to them about, you know, economic or political ideas, to which I say, 
are you kidding me? Like you think that kids are not being influenced from, you know, schools, teachers, uh, the media, peers, you know, like, like if you're going to wait till your kids are adults, then you're basically surrendering them to be influenced by people you totally disagree with. Mm-hmm. And I, as a Christian, like I, I want to impart to my children the, the values and the ideas that I believe in. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm going to raise little atheists and only talk to them about God when they're 18 years old. Um, that's preposterous. Uh, so too, then with political and economic ideas, these are values I hold. They're ideas that I believe are true. Uh, why would I not want to teach my children truth? Why would I not want to give my kids a foundation of understanding that they can use to evaluate contrary ideas that they hear throughout their life? That's not to say everything I believe right now is 100% true and correct always and forever. It's just that like, here's this framework through which I look at the world. Here's this perspective that I have. And as we learn new information and, and identify, you know, new trends and so forth, we can evaluate them based on this understanding and, and if needed, change that understanding, but do so in a very informed and deliberate way. Why would I not want to give my children that same kind of rational framework and that same type of uh, critical thinking ability? And so, so yeah, there are a few out there who are, are critical, but, but by and large, uh, people love what we're doing. And especially we have a lot of parents who are excited for it because they find themselves learning things that they never understood that they were never taught in school every day we get messages from parents usually the moms who are blown away at the kind of economic principles and the political ideas that they're learning and understanding for the first time ever in their lives Um, and so it's been very exciting for a lot of the adults too to have a very accessible way of learning some of these complex ideas Uh, and then it helps them to talk to their kids and have an amazing conversation about it so that's uh, a lot of fun for us to be a part of yeah wonderful thank god for all of that and i should say too even from my background i've taught in secular schools whenever i lived in london and different things and they have that presupposition that their schooling is somehow neutral and they don't see that for people who often talk so much about social constructs and things like that social constructivism they don't see that these are social constructs that have a history and I think um, if you, alongside your work, if you go into people like Gatto and see mm-hmm. how those uh, models of schooling have formed, it blows apart their whole mythology. Right. Your work is important for, uh, for that and many other reasons as well. And um, I want to ask you too, so as a result of your work, I actually got familiar with people like Bastiat and read the law and things like that, which is amazing. And um, I wanted to ask you, why is it important for you then to introduce figures like Bastiat to, to young people in this very accessible mm. way? Yeah, to, to clarify for your viewers, each of our children's books is based on an original important book or essay. And so what we do is we say, you know, here's this classic book with these really important ideas. Let's pull out some of the key ideas and wrap them in a fun story for kids. But then at the end of our books, we say, hey readers, you know, if you're interested in this idea or hey parents, if you're interested in kind of the original book or essay, you know, here's who it's based on, here's what the book is, you can keep learning more. And that's been important because we have older kids and the parents who want a deeper understanding, they're intrigued by these ideas and they'd love to keep learning more. So we can of course point them to the original uh, work upon which ours is based. Um, and, and that's been very fruitful for a lot of people, uh, to go continue learning more. Why do we do it? Well, certainly we want to pay homage to the, the, the thinkers who have helped kind of develop these ideas and, and share them and teach them with others. Uh, but also there's only so much that you can teach in a kid's book. Uh, you know, we <laughs> simplify these ideas and, 
you know, if you've, you know, read The Law by Frederick Bostet, you understand then that there's a lot of really important material in there and insights and engaging ideas that we simply can't cover. And so um, if for no other reason than to help readers get the whole picture and the whole uh, idea at a deeper level, we want to make sure to, to make them aware of some of those other thinkers so that they can continue to um, kind of increase the depth of their understanding. Wonderful. And um, my, myself and my sister who read the book, we both love the series generally, but I think both of us, especially the one with the miraculous pencil. And um, mm. I was just wondering what's maybe your favorite and why from, if this, from the series, if you could say. You know, I think my favorite remains uh, The Tuttle Twins and the Fate of the Future. So this is a book based off of Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. And it's a radical book. Uh, it's one of our more radical ones. It's, it's uh, a look into the nature of the state and, um, and power and what it means to have consent, which people often talk about in like a sexual uh, relationship type of context. But uh, here in America, of course, we have our Declaration of Independence that talks about how just governments uh, derive their powers from the consent of the governed. So what does it mean to actually give consent to the government? Do, do governments today have consent? Uh, do they really? And if so, how? And, and these are very provocative questions. But uh, so in that book, Fate of the Future, we tackle that idea and really encourage readers to think of, uh, you know, what would it be like to have uh, a society where you actually do have consent, where you have uh, kind of a, a moral basis of government where you have persuasion instead of coercion. Um, and, uh, and that's a very, I like that book uh, because it's so provocative and uh, uh, on a religious side, that's much of what Christ versus Caesar uh, is about is this tension between the state and, and Christ. But uh, here for the Tuttle Twins, the, the, the desire that I had in doing that book is to raise these questions and say, we often just assume that governments have consent today and that the state is, is you know, worthy of existence and we should support it and so forth. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. And in that mm -hmm. book, we just barely touch on some of those ideas. And, and I think it's a fun topic to talk about. So that, that remains my favorite. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, well, Connor. And um, I'd love to move next again to Latter-day Liberty, which we mentioned, a gospel approach to government and politics. And I want to ask you, what makes individual liberty then such a fundamental aspect of the good news of the gospel? Um, so I, I feel like liberty is our birthright. I feel like um, that you know, our, our rights come from God, that uh, we are created in his image, that we are equal. And as such, uh, one individual should not be above another. Um, I feel like our brothers and sisters uh, are children of God. And as such, we should treat them as we would treat God. You know, we have the first and second uh, greatest commandments for a reason. And so liberty is really a, a political system that incorporates those ideas that you shouldn't harm other people, that other people shouldn't harm you, that uh, even if those people gather together and call themselves a government, they're still people and uh, they shouldn't you know, violate your rights. They shouldn't use coercion against you. Um, I feel like so much of what liberty is, is based on this idea of you know, individual agency, being able to make those decisions that, uh, that God has empowered us to make, that we we need the ability to make mistakes and face the consequences. And for example, if the government is bailing someone out, trying to help them escape the consequences of their decisions, they're being deprived of, of that full agency that God has intended. 
and, and liberty would allow people to suffer those consequences. You make a bad decision, you reap the consequences, you learn from it. It's a, a formative opportunity for you to progress. And if we have uh, violations of our liberty, we don't have that as much. So I see them as very intertwined and, and that's why I was so excited to work on that book. Yeah, wonderful. I think, unfortunately, even conservatives who are generally seen to be closer to libertarians seem very skeptical at times of focusing on liberty. But I think they often mistake this for a kind of libertinism and assume that mm. you're elevating um, the freedom of the will above all else. But whereas I think for people like us, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like a minimum standard. Then you have everything else that the gospel calls for built on top of that, this non-violent, non-coercive base, just, that's a good start, but it's not the whole picture, which they seem to think it is. Um, could you tell us a bit about that and how does our biblical picture differ from that kind of crude liberti libertinism that they think that we are referring to? So, yeah, those are interesting uh, questions. I, I feel like, um, Conservatives generally are okay with employing the government to pursue their cultural desires or what they uh, believe is right. U using the force of law to, um, to compel others to create uh, a society that, that they think is ideal. I'll give you an example. There is a city, uh, a few cities over from where I live, and uh, they uh, passed a law not too long ago requiring businesses to close on Sunday. And, uh, and they wanted, you know, everyone to keep the Sabbath. They wanted that kind of quiet Sunday feel in their community and, you know, very um, extremely high rate of, of uh, Christians there in that community. And, and we opposed that and we fought that. And I, you know, pushed back on that because I was like, look, I, I believe everyone should have that right. I, I think that's a great thing. I personally, you know, try and keep the Sabbath day holy and, and, and so forth. But God did not give us commandments that we're supposed to use the government coercively to compel others to follow. Uh, this is for us as individuals that, you know, if someone is compelled to keep a commandment, they've not chosen in their heart to do so. They don't get the blessings from it. They don't uh, get, you know, reap the benefits of, of doing so um, like they would if it was an individual choice of theirs. And so um, for conservatives to compel righteousness, uh, really undermines what righteousness is, is, is all about. Conversely, for a libertarian who says, I think, for example, drugs should be legal, a conservative looks at that and says, oh, well, what kind of message are we sending with that? You know, and, <laughs> and, and, and they feel like, it, uh, they feel like to, to decriminalize drugs is to condone drug use. Um, in the mind of a conservative, typically what is bad is prohibited by law you know, and, and therefore what is good is, is allowed by law. They look to the government to help define their morality in a way, or at least enforce it. And, and therefore, when the libertarian comes along and says, let's decriminalize drugs in that binary mode of thinking that they have, they say, oh, wait a minute, but that would mean that if the government is saying it's okay, then it is implicitly okay. To which I say, well, no, just because, you know, government doesn't, uh, you know, criminalize um drinking, you know, big gulp soda drinks full of sugar 18 times a day, that doesn't mean that's a good thing to do. I mean, that's a stupid example I came up with, but the point is plenty of stupid things that someone can do and we don't need the government to ban them all. I, I, I don't use drugs. I think generally speaking, it's a bad idea to do so, but I don't look the government to 
define what those good decisions are or what morality is, and, and conservatives often do. So yes, we sometimes get accused of being libertine and, and, um, and supporting you know, races and, and things like that, but that's where that teaching opportunity, I feel like comes in to say, just because something is legal uh, does not make it okay. I mean, you look back at all kinds of atrocities, you know, like, you know, in the United States, like many other countries, slavery was legal. That doesn't mean it was ethically or morally okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we shouldn't look to the law as our measurement of, of what is moral and good. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Connor. And um, even though we both know this is an absurd, absurd charge, it seems to be one that comes up and up over and over again. Um, this idea that we're pushing for a kind of theocracy or something. I want to ask you just how does our view differ from what uh, people would portray as a kind of theocracy? Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what is a theocracy? A theocracy would be, you know, church rule, ch- church and state being combined into one. We, we've seen this, you know, through Europe historically, we've seen it in some early American colonies, uh, you know, it exists, I'm sure, in uh, several African tribes and, 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 and so forth. Um, you know, theocracy would be uh, this claim that the political rulers speak for God, therefore, uh, people are religiously obligated to do what's uh, what they're told. Uh, you know, the divine right of kings in England is a great example of this idea of, of approbation, divine approbation for one's you know political decisions. Um, contrasted against all of that, you have this idea that people like us of faith are trying to um, make our decisions, our voting decisions, our political beliefs based on religious ideas. Um, and, and it's funny, you know, I, let's say based on my religious views, um, if I were to, I'll just give an example. And this is something that libertarians are, are split on. So this issue of abortion, should abortion be legal or should it not be legal? And in the libertarian community, it's fairly split. You have some people who say, well, it's the choice of the mother and the government shouldn't interfere in that choice. And then you have, you know, the other half of libertarians who say, well, it's, it's a property right of the child. The child is entitled to life, liberty, and property. And the, you know, mother shouldn't have the, the right to terminate the life that she has, in excluding cases of, you know, rape, for example, that she has voluntarily decided to help, you know, create that life. And so now, now that child is entitled. So you have this split. Okay, so let's say because of my faith, uh, I decide as a Christian libertarian that abortion should be illegal, uh, that it should be construed like murder, just to use this example. So someone who's not Christian, let's say it's an atheist socialist, (laughs) to just use the polar opposite, they would uh, perceive me as trying to impose my religious views on them. Because through law, I'm trying to deprive them of the ability to abort their child. And therefore, my Christianity is, is a theocracy. And, you know, you're trying to create this uh, handmaid's tale, dystopian, you know, religious, whatever, where you can impose your, you know, religious views. And I mean, so there's at least some logical sense where a person like that can construe because I'm trying to use government to enact a sincerely held religious beliefs that that's religious oppression or maybe even theocratic in nature. Well, it's not theocratic if it's, you know, democratic or or whatever, where everyone gets to vote. People are influenced by, you know, religion, culture, you know, uh, education, uh, peer pressure, ignorance, fear. We all have our influences that inform what we believe and what we vote for. And so who's to say that, you know, someone who believes in the secular state is not 
religious on their own. I mean, secularism is itself uh, quite religious in many ways. And um, why should they be able to, to impose their views on me if I can't, quote unquote, impose my views on them? So in a kind of democratic, uh, Republican type of majoritarian environment where everyone's voting based on whatever they're, whatever is influencing them to vote, it's silly to say that it's theocratic in nature. Yes, Christians are going to be informed by their faith. Uh, but so too is everyone else going to be informed by all kinds of other things. We all have, even Christians are going to be informed based on their fears and their, you know, secular influences and their family traditions and things like this. And so um, I, I guess I would just repudiate this idea that it's any kind of theocracy if one vote is one vote and you get to bring to your vote whatever biases and, and perceptions and thoughts you have, so too can I. And if those are my Christian you know, faith beliefs, then all the better. Yeah, thank you, Connor. I think that's that where we run up again against that idea of this neutral kind of secular space, which is deep roots in European history, I suppose. I've talked with people on the channel about this, I'll refer people to. Um, I wanted to talk next about your next, another book that we mentioned, actually, Latter-day Responsibility, Choosing Liberty Through Personal Accountability. I want to ask you, what are some of the main responsibilities then building on what you're talking about that we must each um, perform if we're truly to defend individual liberty today, especially in a very aggressive mm. environment, as you suggested? Yeah, this is tough. I So I first wrote Latter-day Liberty and then and that book did really well. And then I, I was thinking a lot about how it's, it's easy to desire liberty. We all want freedom, but are we are we willing to put in the work for what uh, is required to maintain freedom. And so that led to this idea of the flip side of individual liberty is personal responsibility. If, if we don't have a society in which we are taking care of ourselves and one another, then people are going to clamor for the government to do it. They're going to want the state to come take care of us because we can't take care of ourselves. And so we create a vacuum into which the government fills that space if we ourselves are not engaged in those activities. So what are those activities? And that, that is what I uh, talked about in the book is several of these examples. I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind, I feel like, is education. Uh, it is the responsibility of parents to educate their children. Uh, that is the natural responsibility. You bring the children in the world. You need to feed them. You need to clothe them. You need to teach them. And yet in our modern era, uh, families have systematically delegated that to the government. There's a lot of concerns there when it comes to actual indoctrination, and not Tuttle Twins style indoctrination. <laughs> uh, and, you know, propaganda. And I think the lowering of uh, people's intellect. You look at how people were educated even a century ago versus today. The, the dumbing down of our society today to, uh, and I think a lot of that is attributed to the modern education system. And so um, there's a great, uh, there's an evangelical pastor who had this great quote that I'll, I'll only be able to paraphrase. He says, um, can we as Christians really expect to send our, can, can we as Christians send our children to Caesar's schools and really expect that they won't return home as Romans? In other words, you know, we're surrendering our, our children during their most formative years to this, these institutions that do not share our values uh, and in most countries are prohibited from talking about those values. Mm -hmm. uh, are we really surprised when uh, young people are increasingly supportive of socialism and agnostic, if not atheist, and rejecting a lot of these ideas of their parents? Well, no, we shouldn't be surprised. Parents have neglected that responsibility. The government has stepped in and with it has come all sorts of problems. Um, and so I think education is a big one. I mean, I share all kinds of examples in the book. I mean, even 
uh, like security uh, is one. I think like people have surrendered to the state, the provision of, of uh, their own safety. Uh, here in America, it takes on average, I think it's like 20 seconds or something like that when you call uh, uh, minutes, excuse me, 20 minutes when you call 911 hoping for the police to come, right? And I, I tell people, I'm like, police don't come to save you. Police come to write a report about what happened to you, <laughs> right? It's going to take them a while to come to your house. If you want to, you know, here in America, we have the Second Amendment. You have the right to keep and bear arms, to own a firearm, to defend yourself. And so, um, and so that importance of, of playing that role of, of being a provider for your family, a protector of your family, right? Stepping into that role of saying, I, I have a family, I'm creating children. I owe it to them to, to do these things for my family. And if I'm not engaged in those activities, if I'm not being personally responsible, uh, the government is going to step in and do it. They're going to do it worse. It's going to cost more. There's going to be all kinds of negative consequences. And the net result of government growing to fill that space of people not being responsible is that as government grows, liberty shrinks. We lose our freedoms and then we complain, oh, why do I not have freedom? And you look back and you say, well, you, we have less freedom because you have not, you collectively, we all collectively have not been doing the things that we need to, to make sure that the government stays in its boundaries and does not try and you know create this massive welfare state that takes care of all of us. Um, so, so circling back, you know, Latter-day Liberty sold really well, sold a lot of copies, had a great success. Latter-day Responsibility, perhaps not unsur uh, unsurprisingly, hardly sold any books at all. I sold a few hundred. And why? It's because it's not a popular message. I realize that now in retrospect. It's sad to invest that much effort into a book to not sell very many books. But in retrospect, I'm like, Connor, what did you expect? You're, you're creating a book telling people all the things that they you know, aren't doing that they should you know, be doing. And no one wants to sit down and like, oh, thanks, mom. You know, like, <laughs> tell me all the things I need to do. So anyways, but, but nonetheless, it, it is an important message. And, and for all of us that preach freedom and liberty and all these things, like we're really never going to have it unless we as a culture, as a people are willing to step up and engage in those duties. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Connor. And um, another thing that conservatives describe as a problem, which I think is on point in many cases, is the problem with big tech. But then I think we differ in terms of prescriptions and what you do about that. And we've talked about the evils of government, but there seems to be increasing evils from these huge corporations, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I want to ask you, how can we then today stand against so the government on one side and big tech and these corporations on another to ensure a freer future for Christians and indeed others as well? Mm. I, I feel like it's easy for Christians to have a persecution complex. Mm. Right. We feel like we're often picked on um, and perhaps rightly so. But uh, but one of the problems in modern politics, I feel, is when people play the victim card and, um, you know, conservatives with big tech, it's, oh, what was me? I, I was, you know, my Facebook uh, uh, profile was shut down and. My website was shut down and I say, well, hang on, like, you know, those companies, you're not entitled to, to you know, having space on their computer, on their com server. Uh, you're not entitled to make them forcibly associate with you. Um, you know, if I have a home, I, I retain the right to say who can come in that home and who cannot come in that home. It's a basic property right. And, and so conservatives try and get around it. Oh, but they're the public square. They're big enough that they don't have those rights anymore. I'm like, I'm sorry, but you know, why do rights go away when you, you know, 
are big? Like, where does it say that like, after you grow this big, you no longer have the freedom of association or property rights. And so, um, so these conservatives like Christians, oftentimes I feel like play the victim card and, and feel like because they're being picked on, they should be entitled to special privileges that they should uh, impose a restriction on someone else in this case, big tech. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who had a, a quote, something to the effect of never give your friend a power you would not want your enemy to have. So like the president of the United States, if it's like, oh, hey, president, we want you to like, you know, lock these people in Guantanamo Bay who are, you know, domestic terrorists, right? And so everyone's saying, President Bush, you know, you need to have this executive power that no president has had before. Let's do this. And so all the conservatives say that. Well, then if a liberal or a democratic, you know, president comes around and starts in, uh, incarcerating people, you know, conservatives, for example, to use a crazy example, it's like, well, you guys empowered the president to have this power. And now you're complaining about how it's being used. In the United States, there's this argument right now about this uh, filibuster in the Senate for the same reason. And it's like, well, when your party is in control, you love using that tool because then you get to like shut down the opposition. But suddenly, you know, when you're no longer in the, the majority, you're complaining about it. So I feel like it's that way with conservatives, with Christians, like if we're playing the victim card, um, when, when we're in the minority, when someone else is picking on us and we're saying, we want to restrict your rights and big tech, you, you know, we're going to put these restrictions on you. It's like, well, wait a minute. What about if we're in the majority uh, and, and we're, you know, imposing that on other people? Again, it's the golden rule. Like, if you don't want them doing that to you, you shouldn't be doing that to them. And, and that's where I think the message really gets lost, where people no longer think on a principled basis. It's very reactive. It's like, well, I don't like what you did and I'm the victim, so I'm gonna, you should be punished and I should be able to you know, do what I want on your platform and your system. And I'm like, where, where, where are the people who are like sticking to principles and, and uh, willing to recognize that people have rights, even if you don't like how they use those rights, it's their decision and you shouldn't be able to control them. And it just seems like there's too few people who, who will stick to those principles, even when they are a persecuted minority, Christian, conservative or otherwise. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Connor. And uh, speaking of principles, then I'd love to touch upon Christ versus Caesar, two masters, one choice, which I think is an important contrast that you draw there and something that we Christians need to reattend to. I wanted to ask you about this notion, which seems many conservatives have, um, that we must submit to the law. And I want to ask you, what, what are they getting wrong, maybe even if they're well-intentioned in their reading of certain biblical passages, say like Romans, which they assume covers this modern nation state as it's a understood today yeah this is a provocative uh topic to what degree are christians uh required to submit to caesar and by caesar i mean you know dictatorships democratic constitutional republics monarchies whatever our form of government is i think the question remains the same and and it's interesting you can look at romans 13 or you can look at when jesus says render unto caesar you know what is caesar's you can isolate specific scriptures uh in defense of your position and try and say oh well look you know paul said that we should you know submit to the law but i don't think uh scriptures were meant to be isolated i think that we have to read them holistically i think i think we have to read them in harmony with other scriptures and try and really understand okay is this an exception is this a a translation issue is, is this a context issue where maybe you know something was uh, meant more pertaining to those circumstances like romans 13 is a great example here everyone says oh submit to the law submit to the law and they don't 
look at Romans 12, where it has like a, a seemingly contradictory message where we have to say, well, wait a minute, like love versus uh, submission. And, and how do we really reconcile the two? And what does this mean if we're going to, uh, you know, listen to the whole book of Romans and not just one chapter of it? So, so my position is that, that uh, Christianity compels us to uh, renounce the state, to not support Caesar um, at, with exceptions. And, and I think those exceptions really are like, you know, we shouldn't be using violence. We shouldn't be instigating anything. We should not be oppressing anyone else. Um, and I think there's also strategic wisdom here as well. Like I have a family and I have a mission in life. And if I go out and say, taxation is theft, I'm not paying my taxes anymore you know, whatever, right? Like I'm going to get locked in jail the next day. I'm never going to see my family again. So there's a bit of wisdom in, in going along with what we're told. But for me, there's a difference between in what our outward performances are in, our, in order to protect my family or protect my, my life and my mission. So there's a difference between those outward performances and my heart. And, and so I think what Christ wants is our loyalty. He wants our heart. He wants us to have an eye single to his glory. And if I'm patriotic and waving the flag and cheering on the military and let's go kill those people who hurt us. And if, if I'm, if, if my heart is on team Caesar, then, then I've chosen a different master. No man can serve two masters. And, and that is why, as I, I have the subtitle of the book, there's two masters, but there's one choice. And Christ, I think very clearly in the scripture says like, if you're not with me, then, you know, here against me type of thing. And so um, I can begrudgingly go along with the state. I can begrudgingly pay my taxes because it's a calculated decision to, to keep Caesar at bay so that I can focus on what God wants me to do. But I have to protect my heart. I have to not support Caesar. I have to not want to have loyalty to him or to look to mortal institutions as, the, as my provider and protector. Um, I talk about in the book about what, is idol what does modern idolatry look like? We say, oh, how... How silly those Israelites worshiping golden calves. I would never do anything like that. And <coughs> excuse me. And yet in our day, there are plenty of modern idols where we similarly look to the arm of flesh and these, these substitutes for God to provide for us and to protect us. That is what the state essentially becomes is like, oh, don't care. We'll take care of you. We'll, you know, anything you need, you, you look to us, we'll protect you. The state is going to be there for you. And we, we disconnect ourselves from God. And so I, I feel like, uh, especially in America, the kind of Christian conservatives have created this fusion or attempted to create this fusion of their faith and the state. And I feel like that itself creates a modern idolatry where they are not boldly standing for Christ. They have allowed Caesar to creep in and create this like warped gospel that allows them to wave their flags and feel patriotic, even while at church, while they're supposedly supposed to be worshiping Christ. And yet they're worshiping like this Americanized version of Christ in our country. Um, and so this, that was a book that I felt very passionate about because as I look around at Christianity more broadly, whatever your denomination is, it feels like there's a lot of people who are drawing nigh unto God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And I feel like that's where we could all use a little more, uh, a little more work. Mm, I'm in. And, um, I think on the other side, so that's all correct that you have that form of idolatry. But unfortunately, it seems to me as an, an, an outlooker in your country, an onlooker, I should say, um, that you have the other side now with critical theory. There's this desire for a state-enforced equity and things like that. Um, I wanted to ask you how then might we battle both these evils today as they're sort of spread across state institutions, schools, and corporations. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean... 
with our policy institute, we're dealing with stuff like that from a legal standpoint. But I feel like the, the true and fundamental answer is much of what we've discussed, and that is education. Um, if, if people are led to believe that, you know, equity is an ideal or that these Marxist ideas are, you know, good ideas that people should be identified by their skin color or treated differently because of supposed oppression of their ancestors or whatever the issue is, um, that really boils down to a lack of education. It is, uh, it is this perspective that I think is misinformed from history and, uh, what, what's unfortunate is, you know, when, when the media gets involved and celebrities and politicians and so forth, it really, uh, in the eyes of young people, makes it seem far more credible, these ideas, than they actually are, I think. Um, and so I just think about it in the context of me and my kids. How, how do I talk to my kids about this? And thereby, how do I talk to many other families and their kids about it? And, uh, and the, these are hard issues. Like, it's, it's, with racism, for example, we need to talk about racism. We need to talk about how there was state-sponsored racism and legalized slavery and all of these horrible problems, both in our country's past, but countries you know, all over the world. And, and those are topics that we should not have fear about discussing. But uh, to take it a step further and say, oh, because of those historical things, you should be you know, deprivileged, you should be punished, uh, you know, people should be treated equally today in, in favor of this notion of equity instead of equality. Um, we need to understand the nuances. We need, uh, need to understand the dangers. It's okay to understand the historical oppression and the problems and, and so forth. But when it comes to what the perceived solution is, mm -hmm. like, because of this, therefore, we need all these, <laughs> like, you know, discriminating policies. That's where there has to be education and conversation. And we have to have a dialogue. We cannot just accept that, oh, because of this, we need to swallow the, the solution that they're, they're proposing. And I feel like a lot of people are very fearful right now of, of how dominating these topics are. They don't want to engage. They don't want to put their hand up and say, I have a concern with that. They're going to, they're worried about being canceled or attacked. Uh, and so they stay quiet. And to me, that's a tragedy. To me, we need more conversation. We need more dialogue. We need people asking hard questions and uh, whether that's publicly or privately, I think that needs to happen. For our part with Tuttle Twins, the focus is privately, just around the dinner table. Let's discuss these ideas as a family. Let's think through these topics. Let's not ignore the, the warts and bumps in, in history. Let's talk about these frankly. Let's talk about them from our Christian perspective. What do we think God wants us to do about these things? Um, we want to see more families talking about hard issues rather than ignoring them and assuming that your child is just going to, you know, be... be uh, uh, educated properly and in a wholesome way from the schools and the media and their peers, let's take the initiative ourselves. Let's, let's step into these conversations ourselves so that we can talk to our kids about these ideas. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you, Connor. And just a, to close today, then I'd like to ask you, where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work then following up this interview? Uh, yeah, and, and thank you to Mark for having me uh, on. I appreciate this. Uh, it's a, been a fun conversation. Um, if you're interested in our Tuttle Twins books, that's at TuttleTwins.com. Uh, my website is ConnorBoyak.com, or you can just Google my name and then I'm easy to find. Um, and then our Policy Institute, where we do a lot of our legal research, is uh, Libertas.org. And so any of those websites or just Googling around, you'll be able to find uh, me and my work pretty easy. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks very much for joining me today, Connor. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. God bless you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you.